in the Civil Rights Act of 1968, America does move forward. And the bell of freedom rings out a little louder. Hi there, this is A Little Louder, a podcast for wonks, housers, and rabble-rousers where we talk about fair housing, community development, and how we can use these issues to build people power and work toward equity and justice. I'm Christina Rosales. And I'm John Hinneberger. And this is episode eight. And we asked last time, Christina, for feedback from our listeners. That's right. I got a couple of uh, notes in my inbox shortly after we aired. And, uh, and people wanted more wonky stuff. Can you believe it? Well, so we're going to dish it out to them today. That's right. So today we are very excited to bring you Community Development Block Grants 101. This is a major pot of money that goes to cities that is uh, a budget item in the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development's budget. And is in the news because of the president's proposal to eliminate the program entirely. He has eliminated it in his version of the budget. But before we get to that, Christina, I got a question for you. Yeah. So you're the communications director here at Texas Housers. So how does it feel to have your organization on the front page of the New York Times? It's amazing. It's the accomplishment of the year, probably. But I should note that it is not the first time that Texas Housers has been on the front page of our paper of record in the country. Well, tell us a little bit about why we're on the front page and how it's not for doing anything really bad. The The story is about uh, subsidized housing, what, what is called project-based Section 8 and we have been working at Texas Housers with some women in Houston who live in an apartment complex that is subsidized by the federal government that is in a floodplain and has flooded multiple times and has been very dangerous for the people who live there. Um, so we've hired a, a community outreach person to talk to the women, tell them about their about make sure that their voices are heard about what they want for their home. And the angle uh, that in the New York Times article, I think is a really important one, which is that uh, this particular development that our organizer, Erica Bowman, has been working in with the moms is one of uh, probably more than a thousand developments across the country. I think the number, Christina, was several hundred thousand individuals who live in um, HUD-subsidized housing that's located in these flood hazard zones. So with climate change being on everybody's mind these days, uh, it's uh, interesting to find out that HUD has never really dealt with the problem and has no procedure for uh, dealing with apartment developments that it provides annually hundreds of millions of dollars of subsidy to that are in these floodways and that cause the tenants great suffering and uh, and risk. So if you haven't checked it out, the front page of the New York Times from Friday, uh, April 12th, was uh, featured this story that we're talking about. So check it out. It's online too. So today we have a real treat. We have our two Texas Housers co-directors, so John and Karen Pop. And, uh, and Karen and John, who have decades of experience in advocating for the fair and equitable use of CDBG will provide their stories from on the ground and tips for how to do this kind of advocacy work. So Karen, thank you for being with us. Certainly. 
you want to jump right in? Sure. Okay. So what is the Community Development Block Grant Program and how did it start? Well, this is a program that started in 1974 as Richard Nixon's answer to the war, Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty. It's a program intended to improve housing conditions and community conditions in low-income areas. So how is it uh, intended to work? It's intended to, to recognize needs gathered from a public participation process to identify the needs and then propose solutions to those needs. President Johnson had a very ambitious plan, which uh, injected f- large amounts of federal funding in a variety of different programs. Those programs quickly became controversial with mayors because uh, principally of a provision in the law which required that low-income people be afforded the opportunity to have substantial input in how the funds would be used. And that quickly became controversial with the mayors because they saw that eroding their ability to shape the use of funds that were uh, undertaking urban revitalization programs and other things. Under LBJ's War on Poverty programs, cities had to use funds in a certain way as dictated by this federal plan. The difference was that local groups applied directly to Washington for the funds, and the city government wasn't involved. In this program, in CDBG, the funds are allocated according to a formula, and the local government gets them, and then they decide what to do with them. There are public participation opportunities, but the funds are coming from the federal government to the local government. So what are some examples of how this has worked on the ground? You all have have been around Texas and seen this process play out in a lot of localities over the years. So how has how have you seen this work out? What are things that stand out to you? Well, the program has created a lot of improvements in housing for really low-income people. It's created some jobs. I'm not as big a fan of the, the economic development side of CBG. It's provided a lot of infrastructure in low-income communities. It doesn't necessarily get the kind of public participation that was envisioned in its early days. When we were involved with CDBG in the 70s and the early 80s, we saw a substantial amount of housing being created, including housing by community development corporations. A lot of this was truly transformational in terms of neighborhood revitalization efforts And a lot of that investment of CDBG funds in affordable housing formed an equity basis that got community development corporations up on their feet and leveraged them into larger housing producers that were able to have a significant impact on both housing supply and making sure that there was neighborhood revitalization component to housing. I think another something that's really hurt the program is that the amount of money available has fallen dramatically from a high of $15 billion in 1979 to now an amount that hovers around $3 billion. Oh, At the same time, the number of jurisdictions that are eligible to receive CDBG has gone up phenomenally. So that's caused altogether about an 86% decrease in program dollars that are available. And some of the related problems with that is if there's not a lot of CDBG money on the table, it doesn't attract a lot of citizen interest, and or nor does it get a lot of attention from elected bodies in terms of oversight or planning on how 
CDBG activities will be carried out. Right, because there's less at stake in, in mm -hmm. essence, especially when you think about where, it's, where the program has come from. The program is out there, and it's been doing the same thing for a number of years. So there are a lot of funding patterns that are very established in terms of how the funds are used. They're still, can, I'm, I'm still hopeful for public opportunity to participate. There, there can be pressure that changes the funding pattern. There can be amounts that, for one reason or another, get rededicated to other uses because people brought forth other needs. We've, we've been talking about CDBG, but what, what is it trying to accomplish? What are its goals? Maybe the way to look at that is in terms of the three national objectives. To use CDBG, an activity has to qualify under the three national objectives, and those are kind of wonky things. So these, these objectives are low and moderate income benefit, elimination or prevention of slums or blight, and urgent needs. Most of the funds are allocated under low and moderate income benefit, and that can be housing programs, that can be infrastructure improvements, that can be economic development, it can be facilities that predominantly serve low-income people. And when Karen says these are the national objectives, it means that in order to use the money, you're supposed to fit whatever you're going to spend the money on into one of these three categories. The threshold is that 70% of the funds are supposed to benefit low and moderate income people. Uh, or uh, you can also undertake activities, as Karen says, that eliminate slums and blight. The devil's in the details of that. What's slum is in the eye and blight is in the eye of a beholder. Uh, and there's a lot of examples of cities claiming that they're eliminating slums and blight that don't have anything to do with what we think of as typical problems in neighborhoods in slum and blight. They, there are other things as well. So planting trees downtown might eliminate slum and blight for somebody, but for somebody in a low-income community, if they had the chance to say what they wanted money to be spent for, they might not say a tree. In downtown, they might say something in their neighborhood. And from an advocate's standpoint, why this matters is this is the remnants of the war on poverty. This is the centerpiece of the nation's commitment to deal with housing and community development problems in, in impoverished communities. Big cities like Dallas and Houston, they get a big chunk of the pie and they have a larger population uh, that, that might have modest means. You know, they're, they're more lower income communities. But then there are smaller cities that have very large populations of people in great need and they don't qualify for as much money. So I guess describe the, the inequality there. Like how, how does that work out and, and is that fair? Is that right? It's a complicated formula that Congress has put into place. But the bottom line is that the program's been around since like 73. And over the course of those years, Congress has periodically, in order to attract continual congressional funding for the program, has expanded the number of cities that are eligible for the use of the money. And that's problematic. It, we've never agreed that we're going to target the money where it really is needed. We're going to give everybody a little piece of the pork barrel. The idea is that these funds address poverty at a, at a deep level. It's my understanding that it is intended to, uh, to fund things like building housing, homeless shelters, you know, capital projects like that. But, I mean, what else is it being used for? Well, that's exactly right. And that's more of what's promising about it is that it is for the bigger ticket things, the infrastructure, the housing, social services, Per person costs much less to serve somebody, but they may have the same problem the next month. CDBG is supposed to 
fix the problem. So what are cities using that you've seen cities are using money for? For example, the city of Austin gets millions of dollars in CDBG. So what what is the city using it for? The city of Austin and a lot of other cities run a variety of home repair programs. They range from programs that uh, fix a leak in a roof that's leaking near the electrical system or a plumbing pipe that's burst or they provide architecture barrier removal, which means they put ramps so that people can people with a disability can get into a house and modifications to make the house accessible throughout so they can continue living in their homes instead of facing an institution. And then they run large-scale rehabilitation programs where they basically rebuild the house. They buy land for housing programs. Um, many cities do infrastructure. Sometimes that's really focused on low-income communities, and sometimes it's focused on other areas that are widely used and but have enough low-income people that they can say it meets one of the national objectives. Programs like those Karen's just talked about are really the 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 reason why I think CDBG is really important. These are direct benefit programs that usually serve elderly people, people with disabilities, the real uh, truly poor folks. Uh, putting a ramp on somebody's house is the difference between somebody being able to stay there and being institutionalized in a nursing home. Where the program goes wrong is when cities get really creative about the use of the money that they employ. An example in Houston where in an impoverished neighborhood, the city charged the cost of buying a fire truck to the CDBG program because the fire, sta- the fire truck would be located in a fire station in a low-income community. One of the issues in CDBG, it's a phenomenon called maintenance of effort. And CDBG is not supposed to replace local funds. If they fix something in a well-off neighborhood, they shouldn't turn around and say, Uncle, Uncle Sam has to take care of that infrastructure problem in a low-income neighborhood. They're supposed to use their tax dollars throughout their city and not supplant the use of the tax dollars with CDPG funds. That's specifically prohibited in the regulations, but almost never enforced by HUD. So community development block grants essentially take the city's, the local jurisdiction's responsibility to care for all of its residents and it just, in some cases, they can just say the federal government will take care of that responsibility. That's it's, right. When it's That's the misuse of the program. CDBG is explicitly designed to give cities extra money to help deal with deficits in services and facilities which have built up over many years, not to surplant the regular equitable expenditure of local revenue. The Urban Institute has a report. Actually, it, GAO did the original report on whether maintenance of effort was an issue and concluded that 60 cents of every dollar was actually in violation of the maintenance of effort. But they don't have good criteria for for proving that. Nobody knows exactly what a city would have done if it didn't have the CDPG. They know what the city did when it did had the CDPG, but they don't know what it would have done if there was no CDPG. So it's hard to prove that they used it to substitute for their local funds. I think it's clear in cases like the one I just cited about fire trucks, where if you buy the fire truck for the white neighborhood out of local funds and you buy the fire truck for the, the African-American low-income neighborhood out of CDPG funds, 
That's a violation of the intent of this and the rules of the CDBG program. But the problem is also that HUD just doesn't enforce this type of stuff. Along with this, we've had deep cuts into the HUD budget uh, on the administrative side, which means that there aren't HUD staffers in place who are actually looking into this type of thing. So it's, it's now enforcement of these type of problems is largely a complaint-driven process, and HUD has never established formal processes for citizens to file complaints on things like the maintenance of effort problem. CDBG is a great program, but keeping it on course is getting more and more difficult to do. The two of you have, again, advocated in, in Austin and around the state for a long time. I think I want you to talk about what effective advocacy around CDBG looked like in Austin, you know, in 1979 and 1982, uh, you know, before this budget, the budget for CDBG sh- uh, shrank so much. Well, one of the interesting things in, in Austin's CDBG history is the ACORN ordinance, where the organization ACORN had a number of members who found out that the city had paid for railroad crossing gates in its neighborhood with CDBG and in other neighborhoods with city money. And that didn't sit right with low-income people in that area because they knew they had houses falling apart. They knew they had senior citizens who were losing their homes because they were in such bad condition. And so they filed a complaint with HUD, and nothing came of that, but they built up enough momentum that they were able to get the city council to pass what's called the ACORN Ordinance, and that stopped the city from that point forward from using CDBG funds for infrastructure. And the priority of the ACORN members, and this is back way back in 1982, right? Karen? You were there. Yeah. Well, I can't remember anything anymore. But um, the 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 problem was is they had there were Acorn was out door knocking, talking to people about problems, and it turns out they ran into a lot of senior citizens who were saying, "I'm going to have to give up my house because I can't get around here. They didn't have a ramp, or maybe the roof was leaking, or the toilet was falling through the floor in the bathroom." And the city had no home repair program. There was no way that these indigent uh, individuals could get any sort of repairs to their homes, and so housing was a priority. And they ask, well is there any source of funding available for it? And when they looked at how the city was expending CDBG funds, they found this maintenance of effort problem. In the end, ACORN uh, organized low-income people to go down to City Hall and, uh, and to testify about their, the problems and their needs. And the city voluntarily agreed that it would adhere to certain standards, uh, that it would spend public works money fairly across the city and would uh, and which would free up money that could go for home repairs and ramps for elderly people in wheelchairs and things like that. And interestingly, that was back in 1982. And Karen tells me that that ordinance is still on the books and is still frequently the subject of of conversation when the city, on an annual basis, makes decisions about what its priorities are for spending CDBG funds. Something else that's a really great legacy from the early days of CDG in Austin is the formation of some community development corporations, which were among the nation's first community development corporations, and they secured funds from CDBG to build housing, which is still in operation today, and those neighborhoods have become 
number one neighborhoods for gentrification. So having that investment from the 1980s and the 1990s in of CDBG funds into those neighborhoods, into housing that the neighborhood corporation owns has been a great resource in making sure that lower-income people can continue to live there. So we're talking there about an investment back at the time of maybe $25,000, $30,000 for a home that was owned by a community development corporation that is now housed, has provided extremely affordable rents to low-income people for upwards of 40 years, and has formed the basis of forming a neighborhood, democratically controlled community development corporation, which continues to look for other funds and find other funds in low-income housing tax credits and other programs to build housing. So it seeded the infrastructure of community development corporations, which are responsible for thousands of units of housing. How does a city get CDBG? What do they have to do to get the funds and and maintain them? If a city has 50,000 people, it's eligible. If a county has 200,000 people, it's eligible to apply for, to become an entitlement jurisdiction. And once they do that, then they have an annual process they have to go through of determining how they're going to spend the money, There's paperwork that has to be filled out, and they get it. So chances are if someone lives in a place where there's more than 50,000 people or in a county where there's more than 200,000 people, their community gets CDBG. Yes. A lot of our listeners, like us, are advocating for a fair and equitable disaster recovery. And a big pot of money that is that comes after a big disaster like Hurricane Harvey in 2017 is community development block grants for disaster recovery, so CDBG, DR. Do the same sorts of processes and... Um, and requirements apply to that disaster recovery money? Congress appropriates the money to recover from disasters from through the CDBG regulatory framework. So yes, all of those public participation placeholders that are in the regular CDBG program are available in the disaster recovery program. How do we make sure that people who need to benefit, who should benefit from this program, how do we make sure that they actually see the benefits? HUD puts out some really useful tools that you can click through and put the city or the county that you are interested in in, and then you can see what HUD projects are worst-case housing needs, the number of households that are paying more than they can afford for housing, the number of households that are paying half of their income for housing. And invariably, those are the lowest-income people. HUD sorts them out into different categories, basically people below poverty and then on up the income ladder and shows how many of those people have housing problems, how many of them have rent or home ownership costs that they can't afford. And that, that's helpful in designing where to put the funds. That, that information Karen's talking about tells you where the need is, and then you have to look at an annual plan that the city produces for the expenditure of the CDBG funds and see if that the city's proposed expenses are in sync with the needs that are identified in the data Karen was talking about. And that's very, frankly, seldom done. Well, I, I'm on an advisory commission which holds hearings, and the public participation has really fallen off over the years. There's less money every year, and the uses are pretty set, so there's not a lot of citizen participation. 
I think advocates generally feel like this is this is there's a plan behind this. Uh, the slow erosion of public involvement and support, and the the kind of strangling of the funding stream has is is intentional because there are a number of members of Congress and indeed uh, President Trump's administration which have called for the just elimination of community development block grant funds, which would essentially leave us with with no federal targeted effort to deal with um, the type of urban problems that all of those seven Lyndon Johnson categorical programs were seeking to address back in the uh, the mid-1960s. The erosion of community development block grants is not a place where we want to end this conversation. So to end on a high note, you've mentioned some some stories about the ACORN ordinance, about uh, a, a people organizing to make sure that they see their fair share of, of this funding. Do you have another example of a community understanding the process and successfully advocating for their interests? There's a community, it's a non-border colonia near, well, between San Marcos and Seguin, uh, where they had a problem with septic tanks not working in the community, and it was becoming kind of a serious problem. They organized and went to their county commissioner's meeting. They packed the commissioner's court. There was standing room only. They testified. Uh, One particular woman came in with a pair of waiting boots and slapped them on the podium and started explaining the trouble she had because her neighbor's septic tank was failing and it was leaking over into her yard. Uh, The commissioners approved applying for CDBG. And through that, the community group kept looking at other possibilities for housing programs, at any other program that could benefit their community, and they'd held, they held community meetings about it. They invited their, their county commissioner to come out and meet with them one Sunday afternoon just so they could all get to know each other better. When the funds came through, they stayed involved. They helped with the application process. There's a lot of paperwork that has to be filled out, and a lot of people fall through the cracks because they, they can't deal with the burden of paperwork. So they uh, set up a little church in the community as an application spot, and they had people from the um, from the UT Community Development Law Clinic come and help them. They they used the sanctuary as a waiting room. They used they had the copier on the spot. They had a notary on the spot, and so it was a one stop shop. And the consultants who managed the that effort had never had a community work that intensively with them to make sure all the applications, and they had a really high rate of participation because the community was so involved in the project. I'll throw another story out there, which is the Guadalupe neighborhood in East Austin, which is um, the uh, centered around Our Lady of Guadalupe Church. It, it's, it's right on the east side of downtown. It has been for decades subject to encroachment of downtown and gentrification. There is located on in the neighborhood uh, an old house. It was the uh, the nation of France's embassy to the Republic of Texas, built in the 1840s, and it's operated by the Daughters of the Republic of Texas. The congressman from Austin looked at the situation and decided that this house needed to be enhanced, and to do it, he proposed to acquire several square blocks of homes around the house in the Guadalupe neighborhood, 
tear them down and to build a large green park in the area. Now, these were homes of people who were parishioners at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church for generations, elderly people who had grown up in the homes, who had deep ties to the community, who didn't drive, who walked to church. This was, these were just such good people. So $622,000 of community development block grant funds was authorized to buy up and tear down all of these homes of folks in the area. The community, the parish board of the church, learned late of the plan of the city to use CDBG funds to do this. And they organized and went to the city council and the, the priest and the nuns and the, the elderly parishioners in the area and the other residents who weren't part of the church went down and testified. And they put so much pressure on the city council that the city council abandoned that plan and instead said to the community, we will use the CDBG funds for your priorities, which turned out to be putting a new roof on all the elderly people's homes in the neighborhood, doing bathroom repairs for people and things like that. That gave birth to a community development corporation in the neighborhood, which today, Karen, how many houses are they, have they built? It's in the it's hundreds. A- it's a lot. I can't tell you how many. But they bought every vacant lot in the original boundaries of the neighborhood. They started a revolving loan program for people to who were able to carry out repairs themselves to get their homes fixed. They prioritized the city programs to that area. So And they, they put houses on those vacant lots, which was really important. Those houses were like renting for $295 a month for a three-bedroom well, house. It was the first time that new housing had been added to that neighborhood in decades. And so it, it was true neighborhood revitalization. And to me, what Guadalupe was able to do with CDBG funds is really the promise that President Johnson's original programs were intended to do. It involved engaging with people in the neighborhood to identify a solution to the problem of neighborhood decline and decay and not to, exp- to impose upon a neighborhood an external idea of a giant urban renewal project that was going to level their homes. So it can work. We've seen it work. But the community has to be engaged. The community has to have knowledge about the process. And the city government has to listen to the community. And on that note, uh, that's our show for today. So if you have any feedback, we got some feedback notes from from our last episode. We were so excited. <laughs> so thank you to, to our listeners who, who were excited to provide us some notes. We are working on what you want to listen to, and this was just one example. So if you have any feedback, you can email christina at texashousing.org. JT will take us out. I'm still got my